It wasn't so long ago that small and mid-sized American communities were served by multiple news outlets. But today's guest warns of the expansion of news deserts, areas without dedicated local coverage because of shifting technology and economics. She's Penny Abernathy this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. Alongside me is my friend and co-host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal. Each week, we talk about big issues with great guests, authors, journalists, artists, and more, to make sense of the stories that shape public life in the United States today. To help us this week, we're joined by Penny Abernathy, a former executive at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. She's also the night chair in journalism and digital media economics at the University of North Carolina. Among her publications is a 2018 study titled The Expanding News Desert. Penny, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for the invitation. So we want to talk to you a little bit about your more recent work, but tell us a little bit about your background. You've, you've done it all in, in, in journalism. <laughs> you were a reporter. You've been an executive. What drew you to the news? Well, I think that I've been a journalist heart and mind since um, my senior year in high school when I became co-editor of the school newspaper and then marched down to the local newspaper right after graduation and applied for a job to cover sports. So it has been one of those things that I was just fortunate to go into the business when many women were entering the business, like opportunities were opening up. and. My first third of my uh, career was spent as a journalist, uh, working with some really fine, small, mid-size, and regional papers. Yeah. Uh, about uh, in my mid-30s, I was ended up at the Dallas Times-Herald in the midst of a great, one of the last great newspaper wars between competing newspapers, and realized that in many ways the business of, of news was going to determine well, who won eventually there? So I went back into school and, and switched over to the business side. You've 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 worked at the, sort of the from the small town paper to the big national it, right. reputation newspaper. I'm curious if we get a little meta about yeah. this. <laughs> what role do newspapers play in 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 small communities, in big communities, in national dialogue? I mean, what is the role of the newspaper today? Well, newspapers have been with us since the beginning of this country. In many ways, they bound this vast country together. After the Civil War, as people moved west, one of the first things they did was establish a newspaper. So I think one way to look at a newspaper is to say that it, is, it has informed and educated us as citizens, but it's also built community in a, in a country and bound us together. So we're going to get into the state of newspaper right. journalism today uh, momentarily, but take us back about two decades or so when yeah. your research began. Did most communities large and small have a daily newspaper? Well, many communities large and small had a daily newspaper. Almost every community of any size had a newspaper of some sort. So the other option would be a weekly? Or a weekly, right. So, and I would say if you went back two decades, lots of estimates as to how many newspapers there were, probably about 11,000. One of the problems is nobody had really done an audit 
that went down to cover some of those smaller newspapers that were covering the small and mid-sized communities. So there were 11,000? About 11,000. What, what are the numbers today? Uh, we have lost, just in the last 15 years, we've lost a fourth of our newspapers. So we have 6,700 newspapers. Why? What, 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 what's the shifting ground that's, that's leading uh, to the loss of these the papers? The business. Yeah. The business model, the for-profit business model that has supported newspapers since the very beginning of this country, but especially in the 20th century, collapsed. And is, is, does it, is, it, is it the Internet? Is it the social media? Is it what, what's the... It's a whole range of things. Yeah. It, 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 uh, in many ways, if you think back, the business model, if you go back to the 1990s, uh, the business model was that we never, as when we subscribed to newspapers, we never really paid for right. the journalism that was there. 85 to 90 percent of the revenue and all the profit came from the print advertising. Mm -hmm. So that was both the classified advertising, so if we wanted a job, if we wanted to buy a house, we went to the classifieds in our, our hometown. And then it was the retail advertising. So it's a whole notion of what's happened. The Internet has killed off many of the local retailers. Right, and the retailers were part of that. The internet killed off the uh, classified. It killed off classified advertising first. So it's been a, it's kind of a, uh, a shift over mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, what had supported newspapers had been lost, but and nothing has really replaced it. So you, of course, remember the classified ad sections of right. newspapers in the 1990s, yes. the 80s, yes. and even in the early it's thick as a phone book, yeah. And, particu <laughs> yeah. and particularly the Sunday newspaper. I right. mean, it was an entire section or a section after section. Sure. It was relatively labor not intensive. Yeah. It was somebody who answered a phone, wrote down the ad, or you walked in right. and placed the ad, and it was really gravy. And, and newspapers at that time had a profit margin in 18 to 20 percent. So yeah. it was not only a civic responsibility and a, and a cornerstone yeah. of democracy, it was a profitable business. business. Yeah. A lot of papers were family-owned yeah. at that time. What, what happened to the families? Well, almost every paper started as a family-owned enterprise. So if you look at what happens to family businesses, it's very hard by the third generation to pass it along to the fourth. So. What happened in the late, uh, the last quarter of the uh, century was that m more and more chains started buying up the family-owned fourth-generation newspaper. So we ended up with a lot of large chains, either privately held or publicly traded. What, what was the motivation for chains to start buying up local papers? Well, the, the number of newspapers in the U.S. peaked somewhere in the 1920s. And, uh, yeah, and lifestyle changes, of course, did away with many of the competing afternoon newspapers by the 1960s and 1970s. So if you were uh, the last standing newspaper in your community, you could have a profit margin of 20 percent. If you, were, you still have a good newspaper, you could have one of 30 and 40 if you didn't care right. that much about it. So it was a very attractive uh, market for, for people to invest in. And in many ways, it's what economists called a de facto monopoly because regional television didn't reach down there. Uh, radio had kind of moved over into entertainment, and so you had a, a, a kind of monopoly where you could charge what you wanted to charge readers, you could charge advertisers, and they had to rely on you because you were the only place they could get their message out. Yeah, I, I think back to sort of my growing up myself in a suburb of Hartford, Connecticut yeah. in the late 70s and early 80s. Right. We had two daily local papers right. focused on, and this was a, a town of 50,000 right. people. But we had two daily locals. We had a regional paper in the Hartford Current. Right. Uh, and and I, I think about that now, and that seems 
luxurious in terms of the ability to know what was going on in our community. Right. Uh, it was all covered. Yeah. What, besides just sort of like the factual knowledge, what have we lost with the loss of those newspapers? Well, I like to look at it in two ways. That there are two levels. There with what you just mentioned, there were the local newspapers, and what they did is they covered the routine government meetings. Mm -hmm. They covered the school board. They covered the town council. And they basically showed us how we shared the same problems with our neighbors. Mm -hmm. Like they could take the national headline like the opioid crisis and tell, tell you how it affected your community. Right. And then the regional papers came in and provided an overlay that showed you how you were related to people in another part of the region or in the state that yeah. you didn't realize you were related to. Yeah. So, so that coverage of, of the zoning board or the selectmen meeting or the town or city council, it had a watchdog role too. Yeah. It wasn't simply, you know, we have a new ordinance and it was passed. If right. there was any hanky-panky going on, right. a reporter who was on that beat, who was there all the time, who had sources, who knew yeah, these yeah. elected officials, had sources in city halls and town halls, could get a sniff of something going wrong. So there, there was a true watchdog and, and also investigative element to it. Well, and I, I think that there's a way to look at it. There's a transparency element, right? So it, that's right. why we've had uh, uh, open meeting laws right on there. So there's something about having a professional journalist show up who has history and can provide context and knows when an important issue is on the docket or when one isn't on the docket and mm -hmm. should be on the docket. It, so that that's what we're missing when we don't have anybody show up to cover it. It's that down. institutional knowledge that, yeah. that you cannot translate into an algorithm that you can't get on social media. It's the person who knows can't be replaced by right. by software or, or a machine. Well, and, and you know, one of the thoughts was we'll just get cameras in there. Well, right. cameras provide some transparency, but how many of us sit through a three and a half hour, what appears to be boring meeting? Right. To Not know, to mention the production the values of, 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 of our couch. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So ch chains are not a new thing. Right. Uh, you know, Gannett, for example, and I work for the Providence Journal, which is now owned by Gannett, uh, started chain started their chain in the 1960s right so chains were not new it, right. give me a little bit of history of, of chains in general as opposed to you know the independent new york times or the washington post when did that become a phenomenon quote unquote of journalism well actually the both the new york times and the wall uh, and the washington post had chains uh, before they were until recently huh. so chains actually started in the 1920s with the pulitzers and the hearst as they started buying up papers right. around in the area and kind of doing a regional network uh, of and binding them together. They got really big in the 1970s when we lost the last of the competing newspapers and it became very profitable to have a, a chain of newspapers so you could offer them to advertisers and say, I can give you Hartford, I can give you New York, I can give you Washington or whatever. Uh, so by the, the difference is they also were very consistent in terms of their earnings uh, because they had no competition. So what happened in the late 1990s is that you began to have hedge funds and other kind of investment uh, vehicles start buying stock so that by the end of the 1990s, many of these chains were owned by as much as, uh, as, much as 50 to 80 percent of the stock was owned by investment entities like uh, your mutual fund or your uh, pension fund. And, and, and their interest and commitment was for the profit. They, they, they saw it as consistent profits, you know, they, yeah, they, they outperformed the stock market consistently. 
uh, because they were, in fact, in many ways, as I said, a de facto monopoly. Was anyone then sounding an alarm like, well, maybe it isn't the best idea to have hedge fund managers owning our most of our stock. Oracles of <laughs> democracy. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, just hello? about every journalist in the 80s and the 90s were, 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 were really concerned about where this might uh, lead, uh, end up. I mean, I think the difference is they were, by, the, by and large, passive owners because as long as the profits came in and they outperformed the market, yeah. They were just, they so were sat there just saying. Quietly and just let, yeah, it, let, let it, it go. the business run. So you're writing now about this idea of a news desert or news deserts. Right. What is a news desert? Well, my, my definition has changed uh, quite substantially. I'm defining a news desert now as a place that, uh, uh, where the residents lack access to credible and comprehensive journalism that they need in order to be good citizens in this democracy, in order to make wise decisions about the quality of their lives. Is it specifically local journalism? Uh, I look at it two ways. There are two ways to, to have it. And, you know, one is the loss of a newspaper, mm -hmm. right? So we've lost 2,100 newspapers in the last 15 years, and all but 70 have been non-dailies. So that leaves us with more than 1,500 out of 3,100 counties in the yeah. country with only one newspaper and more than 200 counties with no newspaper wow. whatsoever. Uh, so, and if you think about the shrinking down from 11,000 to 67 over a period of about 20 years, you can begin to see the loss of a newspaper. You don't have anybody at the town council meeting. Yeah. Uh, sitting through the, 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 the boredom and the, everything else to come up with the story that really helps me make a good decision. But you also have lost the investigative reporting and that's the second way to look about at it. Over the last decade, we've lost more than half of the journalists, and most of those have been at the regional newspapers that did this, math, this, this great investigative journalism. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center for International Relations and Public Policy at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at JMLutis. Joining me as he does every week in the Coast Chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 17 books, including the recently published Kid Number One. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Penny Abernathy, a former executive at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. She is also the night chair in journalism and digital media economics at the University of North Carolina. Among her publications is a 2018 study titled The Expanding News Desert. And that's what we're talking about today. You can find Penny on Twitter at Business of News. So what are the citizens of, of these news deserts think about this? I'm assuming your research has gone into what the people who no longer have a paper think. What, what is their reaction? Well, we, I can give you anecdotal evidence, or yeah. I can start with what research has shown. Pew has gone in, as has the Gallup Foundation, to look at what, uh, what people think. And what they've noticed is there's been a great demonition of and diminishment of, of local news that they find relevant in their newspaper, on their TV stations, any place over the last five years. The troubling part to me is 75% are not aware 
that their local news operation is suffering any kind of financial difficulty, hmm. and less than 15% have even subscribed to any, any kind of news, online or in print, in the last year. So why? So I, uh, big question, why? I think it's like the boiling frog. I think even though it's been very dramatic, the frog in boiling water, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. but he is boiling too. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think it's just, it happened over a period of time quite rapidly from our perspective, yeah. because we've seen it, we live it day to day. But if you're, if you're reading the paper, you suddenly notice it's much smaller and not covering the things it used to cover. So there's also, and I say this as someone who has not worked in journalism, but right. has been a, a consumer of right. printed news since I was a teenager. There, in, in, in the 90s and early 2000s, I noticed, particularly in local papers, a movement away from local reporting Yep. towards wire service stories, right. and the, 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 the column inches that were dedicated to a story would get smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where some of the locals that I used to read just really became good for wrapping up garbage right. on, a, on a Friday night rather than real sources of information. Have newspapers themselves and the publishers, have they in some cases lost lock on the product they're delivering that's actually going to drive consumer, you know, consumer investment in them? Um, I think there's there's a lot of blame to go around. I I do uh, stand here and say, uh, you know, we can't blame newspapers for everything, right. right? Some of these things, you know, people say, well, they let classifieds get away. I'm right. not sure what could have been done to have to have arrested classifieds, right. uh, and classifieds were the highest profit, uh, pro most profitable part of what they offered in advertising. But I do think there was a kind of notion that there's, it's, it's a phenomenon in business. As long as you're making 20% profits, why mess with why something mess with that, yeah. that's broken, right? Yeah. So you sit there and it just starts uh, going off very rapidly. There's something called a waterfall moment in business. And, you know, when you hit that waterfall, it often the current just keeps picking up, picking up, and all of a sudden you're over the waterfall. It's too late. Yeah. yeah. Just want to note for our audience you can see an interactive map. Yep. of, of uh, news deserts at usnewsdeserts.com, right. which is another one of your brain children. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for mentioning it, too. Yeah, it allows anybody to, to go down to the county level to see it. No, and I, sp I spent a fair amount of time um, looking at that map. It's really well done, and so I, I would urge people who want to learn more about this to go to that site. Use another term called ghost newspapers. What is a ghost newspaper? It uh, kind of came to me as I was writing that, uh, that report in 2018 and started realizing how many journalists we had lost at both the regional uh, uh, level as well as at the very local level. And to me, a ghost newspaper is one that's lost so many uh, of its journalists that it's really only of kind of a, a frail imitation of what it was in the past. So. For instance, uh, many regional papers had as many as 300 or so journalists on mm -hmm. staff in the late 90s. Many of the ones I'm familiar with now have less than 50 from all of that. And yeah. what's, what's been lost is reporting on education, reporting on environment, all the investigative pieces that save lives and averted disaster. So uh, a ghost newspaper to me is are many of the very thin newspapers we pick up right now that gets back to what you were talking about. Yeah. What is the value for me as a resident, as a citizen? What am I going to find from those newspapers that would have helped me in the past? Do some of those newspapers, though, have a more vibrant online presence? I mean, one of the factors here is simply the cost of right. printing. 
The newsprint right. is not cheap. You have labor involved in running the presses and so forth and so on, distribution. Ha has, has the online news site for some, many, any newspapers picked up that slack? Well, if you look at readership, but it's, it's really hard to know exactly how much has been picked up by there. And the, quite frankly, the stats for many newspapers are pretty dismal. People click on something and don't stay on the site very right. long. Yeah, you know, I see uh, that all the time. Yeah. It's like seconds. If you don't grab them within, right. literally within seconds, and I'm talking three or four or five yeah. seconds. Yeah. And that's true for audio and video as well. Yeah. And that drives, you know, to an extent how you cover certain events, right. how you write about a story, what you choose to, to edit in, in terms of doing a, a podcast or an audio clip or cutting video and yeah. so forth and so on. One last question. Where did all these journalists go? <laughs> I mean, we're laughing, but it's not, not a laughing matter, of course. Where did they go? I mean, some retired, I guess. Uh, some, and unfortunately, we lost history. We lost, right. we lost the institutional history and of both the subject matter they covered and uh, they took the buyout or they retired, right? Others were just laid off and uh, they're in communities now where their only other option is to look at something like public relations or the like. Uh, uh, some have tried to go into government to to do uh, communication there, but there's been a there is there has been a huge loss I think to this to this country and to this democracy, in terms of having professional journalists there to cover everything. Do, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember a moment uh, in the last 20 years when people heralded the rise of. Uh, of of uh, self journalism, right. right? People were just going to self appoint themselves right. to be journalists. They were either going to have a blog or they were going to contribute to something like the Patch they or had their little Post. camera with them, right? right? Yep. And this was going to revolutionize coverage of local issues. Why didn't that happen? Well, I think it's very easy if you're covering a disaster to show up and film the, the film what's happening, mm -hmm. right? If five alarm fire, you've got the video, yeah. right? It's the context. Is that an important fire? Yeah, and what does that mean for that neighborhood? Those are the kind of things that a professional journalists are trained to do. They're, asked, they're trained to ask the question that are going to help you and me make good decisions. And, and you hit on a very important point. They, they are trained also to put events in context. Yep. And you can't simply do that by being a self-appointed person with a camera or a blog or a Facebook site or a Twitter account. Not that a lot of people don't do that and, right. and call themselves quote-unquote journalists doesn't fit my definition. Well, well let, me, let me give you one other anecdote. I had someone on my local town council come up to me a couple of years ago and said, how do you correct a story on Facebook? And it huh. turned out that the uh, town council meeting had turned unexpectedly contentious, and the only account of what happened was what the mayor posted on his Facebook account. So that gets back to the notion there was not what you would, you would expect a professional journalist to have have done, which was to put whatever the issue was. Right, in and that's very common now. Police departments do that. Yeah. Other yeah. government entities and bodies do that regularly, and they understand the impact. Voice of authority. Right. Well, so now you you are an educator now. Right. right. And so, what kind of advice do you have for students who are thinking about careers in journalism? Oh, I mean, I, we've painted kind of a bleak picture here today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things I like about being an educator is my title, which is a mouthful is journalism and digital media economics. So I t encourage all journalists to be entrepreneurs. You've got to understand what the business model is going to be, and I spend a good deal of time teaching that. Uh, and I like being a, a professional now because I think it combines both my experience as a journalist as well as my experience in the business world. Um, 
I think that uh, it is, um, we need people who are thinking constantly about what the for-profit models were. Mm -hmm. We need people who are thinking, can I make this work not from a nonprofit? And we need, quite frankly, policymakers thinking about how we're going to deal with the, the situation that we're in right now. Is that, are there any policymakers doing that kind of thinking? I, is, I, to be honest with you, I've never, you're the first person I've heard say, we need policy something to sustain local news. And, and I, that's a provocative idea to me. Well, yeah, it is provocative in the U.S. It's not if you live in Canada mm -hmm. or you live in any of the Commonwealth countries, right? where there are lots of taxation, licensing sort of arrangements that support public journalism, just like this. Uh, yes, we do have quite a, a few uh, proposals that are out there, and I would add to you that four of the Democratic candidates have actually got proposals out Interesting. to address the, the loss of local news. So this legislation called the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act. Right. Uh, I'm not sure where that will stand by the time this episode broadcasts, but it, it enjoys rare bipartisan Artisan. support yeah. in Washington, in Congress. Yeah. What would that do, and, and what's your assessment of, is, is that part of the solution here? Or? I, I think it could be one of many solutions. I think we're going to have to take a, a, a very holistic approach to thinking about what, uh, what needs to be done. The nice thing is it allows uh, a four-year kind of suspension of antitrust so that newspapers can go up against... The, the big tech giants and negotiate for better, uh, everything from better uh, recipro uh, reciprocity for what they're providing in terms of content mm -hmm. to uh, more contact with the, the, the people who are actually subscribing to them. Um, it is a, um, it, it, it'll be interesting to see how it actually uh, comes through. Uh, the nice thing I've seen in the last year is there have been quite a number of uh, initiatives at the state level where you have Massachusetts studying what needs to be done to, to do this. I think that the interesting thing is if you look at places that have lost journalists, they tend to be much poorer. That means the nonprofit model is not working there and you often don't have, I mean the for-profit model is not working and you don't often have nonprofit uh, ability there. To, to sustain to, it. To sustain it. Yeah. So we're going to have to think of what we do there to support journalism because those are the communities that need it most. What about the, 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 the us as consumers of news? What can we, what can our audience do if, the, if this is something that they care about? Well, first off, you can subscribe. Yeah. Second, I, if you've got a, communities that care, you can lobby the, the, the local one. You can lobby whoever owns your uh, paper to actually um, uh, do something about it and b provide better coverage. Uh, Businesses can do the same, too, to help uh, build up what they need in terms of marketing and support. And there's something wonderful called Newsmatch, where you can uh, contribute to uh, a news organization and it'll be matched. So pick out a, a good news organization that you want to contribute to, and uh, uh, nonprofit especially, many of these digital sites, and see if it can't be matched, too. That's remarkable. We've had other journalism educators on this show, uh, and they tell us, and, and I'd like to know if you see this too, that despite all of the dynamics here, there are a lot of young people that yeah. still want to go into journalism. Absolutely. Is that your experience too? Ten I, seconds. I, I think it, as absolutely, it's, it's almost like the Watergate era again. There, I find very inspired. This uh, is a student. good thing. We're going to leave it on that note. 
Uh, she's Penny Abernathy. Thank you so much for being with us. That's all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about storing the public square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org. He's Wayne, I'm Jim, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.